0: We are Marquette. We are Marquette.
1: We are Marquette. We are Marquette. We are We are
0: Marquette. We are Marquette. We are Marquette. We are Marquette. We are Marquette. We
1: are Marquette. As a people, as a culture, we're really not great about dealing with grief and bereavement and loss, and it's gonna happen to all of us. A lot of times the answer is, I don't know what to say, so I'll say nothing, and that to me is a really isolating approach. So to be able to help somebody when maybe they're the one that's experiencing the loss is enormous, of course, but also teaching their peers to support them has been terrific for me and I hope for them
0: I'm Tim Sigelski and welcome to the first episode of the We Are Marquette podcast. You just heard the voice of Maureen Lewis. Maureen has been an academic advisor in Marquette Athletics for 14 years, but her role goes far beyond that. Maureen has her master's in counseling, and she specializes in helping others cope with grief. When a student loses a parent or a sibling, Maureen meets with teams and helps them learn how they can support their friends when they have no idea what to say or do. Maureen is also a cancer survivor. When we had our conversation this summer, she talked about how overcoming her illness has helped her connect with students at Marquette who are facing a similar trauma. This new podcast is about hearing the voices of Marquette, the people who embody the mission and the spirit of this university. So with that, I'd like to introduce you to Maureen Lewis. Tell us a bit about your role here. What do you do in academic advising, and how did you get involved here?
1: Oh, boy. Um, I didn't know this job existed. I worked in advertising and marketing for 18 years before I came to Marquette. In that role as an advertising professional, I taught a class at Marquette. And I taught in 2003, among other years, and had in my class um, the manager for the men's basketball team and one of the players. And in 2003, the basketball team went to the Final Four, so those two gentlemen were missing a tremendous amount of class. and So I worked with the academic director to keep them caught up while they were on the road and get, make sure that they were still having all the learning outcomes that were part of the class. and. It was actually a great experience for the people in the class because the manager would speak to the class about what life on the road looked like, and I think a lot of times you think that it's glamorous and it's really not that glamorous, but they did a lot of fundraising on the road. They called it the Road to the Final Four Million because it raised the final funds that built the Al McGuire Center, and so he was pretty instrumental in making sure that the players were where they're supposed to be at donor dinners and things like that, and so he reported that back to the class as a marketing experience. So I think it was really great learning for everyone. At the end of that semester, I called Tom Ford and just said, I didn't even know this job existed. I'm so impressed with these guys, how hard they worked to make this happen, in addition to everything else that was going on. I mean, they were being followed around cameras from ESPN on campus, came in my classroom, stuff like that. So it was just kind of a surreal experience. And I said, I didn't know academic support existed at that level. And he said, well, if you're interested in it, you should apply for the job because my coworker just announced she's leaving to go to a football school. So I waited for the job to be posted, and I applied for it, and I got it.
0: So, yeah, I mean, um, kind of similar to you, I I have uh, student athletes in some of my classes, and uh, from the beginning I've also been impressed, like, how hard they work, how early they wake up in the morning, how how, uh, how many hours of practice they go each week. It's really a full-time job on – top of their schoolwork and everything else and, and you had the added experience of you know kind of a media circus on top of it right and you're you're handling these sort of things when you're you know 18 19 20 years old uh so um so it's interesting that you know some some are toiling in obscurity and working for their coaches and their teammates and that sort of things and on top of it uh you had this experience where there was a final four thrown in there right what was that what was that journey like uh you know just think back to 2003 um What were some highlights you remember from that class or some challenges people overcame?
1: I think that challenge-wise was just how quickly everyone on campus knew their name. Hmm. And Travis Diener was not in my class, and he actually works in athletics now. But he said he couldn't study in the library anymore. You just can't do it
0: because
1: people are coming up to you. And in a very positive, supportive Hmm. way, but you still have to get all this work done. Hmm. And... So I thought that was just kind of an interesting insight. And, um, and we see that – I see that every day in my mm-hmm. job anyway, that the level of notoriety that's attached to being, um, at least on the basketball team, is mm-hmm. pretty high on this campus. Um, we've had other teams win championships, and so they've kind of raised their own profile. Mm-hmm. And I think Marquette um, does a great job of covering all our sports from, like, the Wire, the Tribune, all their outlets, and giving them a voice – so they're not as anonymous as you might think but there's 314 student athletes that we deal with Mm. and most people don't know that
0: yeah uh i mean this this was uh before the era of selfies too (laughs) right right now i think people would be coming up and can i take your picture for snapchat or something um but you know even back then uh, i was a student at that at that time and i remember you know just how how much it took over campus and just the energy of that and and trying to on top of you know doing that focus and study and get your work done and graduate and that sort of thing. So in your role, um, what role does counseling play? Uh, How do you see yourself, um, you know, as as an advisor and as a counselor to student-athletes?
1: It's imperative because, I mean, colleges have counseling centers on their campuses for a reason. And there's some anxiety that's inherent to being a college student. Just being a college student is a little bit crazy sometimes and you know am I in the right major and can I do this and oh my gosh my grades and my parents have these expectations and I'm first generation and wonder if I fail out and I'm so laden with debt and I can't get a job and all that going through your head and then add on to it missing class because you're um, competing for a team sport you're far from home you might be international you're not as prepared maybe academically as some of your classmates are because maybe your track to get here was different um, we, for instance, have kids who've never had a theology class before, and they're in class with people who've had theology every day for 12 years, and it's like a foreign language. So, I mean, you just kind of have to meet people where they are. So that's, there's anxiety to being a college student, and that's true. And then there's anxiety kind of inherent to being a Division One athlete. Every student that we work with is recruited from high school, um, so they all came through our door with a coach. And they had a choice to go somewhere else. They were recruited to other schools, too. And they chose Marquette for whatever reason. Maybe um, this was the place they wanted to come and they had the opportunity to do their sport. Or it could be that this coach introduced them to Marquette and they said, oh, I think I could be successful there. So there's all different reasons that they would show up, but they're recruited. So in the back of their mind is, did I make the right choice? And they went from being a big deal in high school, a recruited athlete as a senior, with lots of choices in front of them to coming in as a freshman and maybe not getting playing time. Um, Nobody really knows who they are. Um, Oh, you're just a freshman. And the way that division one sport is organized because everyone's a recruited athlete and was a big deal in high school is you're on a team full of team captains. And so there's just a weird dynamic of who's leading who and who's listening to who and everyone's trying to prove themselves a little bit and coaches out recruiting your position because he's talking to kids who are gonna replace you in two or three years. There's anxiety of I can't get injured and I have to do better and oh, I really screwed up and oh, coach hates me and, and none of that might be true or all of it might be true, I don't know. But that anxiety coupled with just being a regular student needs some guidance sometimes. And then every single mental health issue, almost, and there's a few, that don't fall in this category, but almost every mental health issue manifests between the age of 18 and 25, for the most part, as far as a diagnosis. And look at our population, and that's the age group we're dealing with. So some kids come in and they've already worked with a counselor or a psychologist while they were in high school for whatever their issue might be. and We can help bridge that um, for continuum of care here, Um, or we can explore a little bit more of, like, what services they might need here. So that's a really general of why counseling's important. Everybody's story's different and a lot of times I just feel like we're the net that catches them if they stumble.
0: Mm-hmm. As you're talking I think back to I once had a grad student who uh, had his undergrad at Duke as a basketball player <laughs> and, and uh, he told me early on in the semester that one of the things he wanted to improve and, and get better at and just learn is how to introduce himself. And you think, oh, that's a pretty basic thing. And he's like, I used to go in every every room I walked into, people knew exactly who I was. And he's like, now I have to learn the next phase of my life how to introduce myself to people because people don't necessarily automatically know who I am. And I was like, that is a really profound insight uh, that not every student has to wrestle with. Um, so you're you know working with some I think some pretty. Um, at a deep personal level with a lot of student athletes. What student athletes have left a big impact on you? What stands out in your mind?
1: Oh my gosh, there's so many. I think every year, well we always joke that in May we break up with 50 people, because that's roughly how many we graduate out. Uh, and so we're like, okay, bye, take your number out of my phone, you don't need me anymore. I mean, you don't need an academic advisor after you're done with academics, right? But you've walked this whole walk with them. And I think anybody who works in education would remember all their students Um, year to year. So we have very much that same feeling. I think a lot of them have taught me a lot of different things. Probably most recently, um, I had a student athlete who graduated in December of 2015. He was from Ghana and was on the men's soccer team. Terrific kid and had an amazing journey to get to Marquette and be successful here and then afterward as well. And he was selected to speak at the blue and gold auction dinner in December of 2015 so it was taking place like 10 days before he was graduating and he was nervous to do that and I thought he had a great story to tell that these donors would be interested to know how does your scholarship uh, donation affect a student athlete and the impact it makes and so I was encouraging him to tell the story and what I realized in that process is that he was very afraid people would pity him and he said "I, I can't deal with that. I don't want people saying, oh, you poor thing from this poor town in Africa. And he said, that's not the case at all. Ghana is beautiful. And my city of Accra is gorgeous and it's on the ocean. And my experience was very normal for someone growing up there. So we worked to write his speech to normalize that experience and attach a certain amount of pride to being Ghanaian. And I think that came through in his speech. I mean, I helped him write that speech, and I probably heard him rehearse it 20 times. And at that dinner, I was unprepared for the emotional wallop that it packed right in the middle of the speech. And I knew it was coming. He says in the middle of the speech, in 10 days, I'm going to be the first person in my family and the first person from my village and one of only 10% of people from my country to earn a college degree. And the room just erupted in applause. And it was a standing ovation. And I'm crying. And my coworkers are just handing me their napkins from their tables. And I'm like, oh, these are really nice napkins. And I'm such a mess. And and another student athlete who was there, he's putting his hand on my back and saying, stand up and look at him, look at him. And he was so composed on that stage. And everyone sat back down and he continued with his speech. And then they gave him a standing ovation again at the end. And I thought, at no point did anyone pity him. They were all equally proud. And so I learned to just kind of understand what someone's barrier might be and listen to them so that you can help them have that positive experience without compromising their sense of identity or their sense of self.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have to kind of, like you said, meet people where they are and they might be vastly different things if you have 50 different students they have 50 different stories and uh, you have to be the person who takes the time and understands and listens to all those and it may be completely different than what the person standing next to them is so
1: right right I thought in that example in that event at the blue and gold dinner the fact that there were other athletes kind of lining the back wall who had been working at the event and they were hearing his story for the first time and they're crying Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, we have to do a better job of just connecting each other, our yeah. peer group, to what our commonalities are.
0: So I wanted to ask you about your writing, uh, and we'll link to some of your, the pieces in the show notes so people can get kind of see what you've done, get a sense of your style. You have um, such a personal honest writing style. Uh, where does that come from, and what does your writing process look like?
1: Well, first, thank you. That's mm-hmm. so nice. It's nice to have a platform for it. I've always written, just don't have necessarily a way to make some of what I write public, but now technology, again, has made that really easy. So it's just nice to get feedback from people. I think I I think I write like I talk, and that's really the only way I know. I've taken some way back writing classes. I did the Iowa Writer Summer Camp a couple decades ago uh, and got some feedback uh, that's been valuable, but mostly it's just reading other writers and people whose voice is similar to mine as far as just their authentic speaking voice comes through in their writing. And I just think people are interesting and I love backstories. And so to bring some of that to light is rewarding.
0: The sense I get is that you trust your own voice, which is harder than it sounds because we always feel like we should be writing in a different way often um, when we're learning writing or trying to express ourselves. It's like, well, that's, that doesn't sound right. And when I read your writing, it's like you sound like yourself, you trust yourself.
1: I mean, sometimes you know when it's happening that it's flowing, and sometimes I'll sit on it for a while. Like, the platform that I use the most is medium.com, and I have so many drafts sitting on there that may or may not ever see the light of day. But then ones that that I knew were gelling as they were happening, I didn't even think twice about it and just put it out there, and those are the ones that Mm -hmm. took off. So you do learn to trust the process a little bit and um, just kind of let it happen.
0: Yeah, tap into your intuition, tap into your voice, and just let it flow. Just harder than it sounds. <laughs> yeah, I okay, wrote the, it I
1: wrote a piece about my son getting married, and I wrote it the night hmm. after his wedding. And so 24 hours after he got married. And I knew it. I knew while I was writing it, like, I just have to get this down on paper. And it just flowed. And I thought, I'm going to wait and read it in the morning and before I put it out there publicly. But I read it through one more time, and I said, That's, I'm not changing it. Yeah. And that one took off, so... Yeah. I don't know. Trust it.
0: Yeah, exactly. What surprises you and what surprises people about you?
1: What surprises me is how similar we are, even when we're really different. I see that every fall when new freshman athletes come in. And then there's this tremendous crush of, you know, probably 75, 80. This year we'll have 100 new freshmen coming in where we feel like, oh, gosh, I've got to learn their names. I have to set them apart right away. And so you have to find their What's, how am I going to remember who's who and set them apart quickly, even though they all are doing very similar things? As you learn their backstory, as you learn their motivations, it becomes easier. But I think what surprises me is really how similar we are. And then just in traveling, both with teams and on my own, just finding all these similarities between experiences, between cultures. I mean, our athletics, and not just ours, but generally speaking, Division One athletics, offers you usually greater diversity than the campus as a whole, socioeconomically, culturally, geographically. And so we have this kind of little melting pot happening and then travel just enhances that. I think what surprises people about me, I would say that it might be that I'm a cancer survivor because that was a long time ago, 17 years out right now. But I have a survivor ribbon from a race in my office and sometimes kids put that together. But when a parent of a student athlete is diagnosed with cancer, I will come forward right away. And I will just say, I'm a survivor, just so you know. and Because you don't want it to be a death sentence that they're hearing. Um, and they, it's all new. It's like learning a foreign language overnight. So to be able to put a face to it and be like, are you really? I'm like, yeah, I really am. And then you can talk that talk. And we've had kids lose a parent to cancer. We've had kids with parents battling cancer and in chemo treatment and um, kids trying to get home for different events and parents unable to travel because you can't fly when you're in chemo or radiation. So understanding that and how can we make stuff happen for them anyway and kind of normalize this really weird surreal time, uh, I can speak that language or as much as they need me to. I had a student athlete whose mother died of breast cancer right before he came to Marquette. And so when I met him, she was at the end of her battle And when he was in high school. And he committed to Marquette, came men's soccer player, came to Marquette. Um, and I said to his coach, you've got to place him with a local kid because on the weekends when people go home or over break when people go home, he doesn't have somewhere to go. And he needs a local mom to come to these games and cheer for him. So they did. They placed him with a kid who was um, local, like from Delafield. And they became great friends, which is also sidebar. Uh, Like that worked out. But I had to speak to his team because so many of them didn't know that this was in his personal experience. And so I said, just be aware. Like when your mom's greeting you after the game, that his isn't. And he's not from here, he's from the East Coast. Um, so it's not that she couldn't make the trip, it's she's not here. And I still remember that one of the student athletes was walking across campus with him, like they're friends, and they're walking from building to building. And one of them's cell phone rang, and he picked. He took it out of his pocket and looked at it, and he's like, Uh, that's my mom, last person I want to talk to right now, and stuck it back in his pocket. And nobody said anything then after the class that they were in, that kid who had ignored the call from his mom came running back to the aisle and he's like, I'm an idiot, I'm an idiot. I just realized how hurtful that was for him. Of course, he would love to get a phone call from his mom and that's never gonna happen. I'm an idiot, what do I do? And I said, you tell him you're an idiot. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Like, why are you telling me this? (laughs) I wasn't even there. And I said, he just wants to be aware that you're aware. That's all, and you're not an idiot and you're just 18. So it's the whole not being afraid to speak it and to kind of live your life out loud and to see that you might be the axis that your world spins on, but you're not the only one. So I don't know. I think being a cancer survivor um, also helps you, you. You get a better sense of like what's really important. Like, I'm not gonna sweat that. You know, have I had my ass kicked yeah absolutely and here I still am and so I think that resilience or um, I think that kids if they're surprised about something about me it might be that I'm a cancer survivor and it might be that I'm a little bit of a badass that way to just say what I've been through worse than that and it gives them perspective I don't think it's like how I would define myself ever I would never introduce myself that way to someone I'm meeting for the first time, mm-hmm. but if I see somebody in the struggle, and this is true, I think universally of cancer survivors, they'll say "me too."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not defining to me, mm-hmm. but like if I ran a race for the cure, I'll run it in the pink t-shirt, mm-hmm. and as a survivor, absolutely. And I, because I do want people to know that can be part of your experience, but it's not your whole experience. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's really important when you're in the fight, when you are sick as a dog, and overweight from steroids, have no hair, nauseous, can't eat, blah, 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 the whole nine yards. To see somebody who's healthy, who's been through it, there's just not even words that somebody can say as that are as powerful as seeing somebody in a pink t-shirt running.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And So to me, that's just, it's powerful all by itself. You don't need to say anything else.
0: Mm-hmm. One of your passions is grief counseling. How did that come about and what does it play in your life?
1: I think as a As a people, as a culture, we're really not great about dealing with grief and bereavement and loss. And it's gonna happen to all of us. And we're sort of hopeless about the language that surrounds it and how to help each other through it. A lot of times the answer is, I don't know what to say, so I'll say nothing. And that, to me, is a really isolating approach. And so to be able to help somebody when maybe they're the one that's experiencing the loss is enormous, of course, but also teaching their peers to support them has been terrific for me. And I hope for them. I'm starting my 15th year here in the fall. And in the period of time that I've worked here, so 14 years, I've had 21 student athletes lose a parent or sibling, which is a tremendous loss. I don't want to discount any other kind of loss but in the circle of life we can kind of expect that you might lose a grandparent when you're in college just because of the age but to lose a parent or a sibling is such a profound life-changing can change everything and so there's actually student development theory that would sit in this Um, my favorite theorist would be Tinto so my development teacher would be so proud of me but Tinto says that we have to protect against departure by connecting students to their micro communities on a campus and athletics is a micro-community. Most students at Marquette don't feel like they're connected to the whole campus. There might be buildings on campus they never go to, classes they never go to, certainly other students they don't know, but they're connected to their micro-community, which could be, again, for us it's athletics, but it could be ROTC or Greek life or being in the acapella group or study abroad. So you have this group, they're gonna notice if you don't show up for something, and they're gonna be your more likely people to reach out to you when things are falling apart but they're 20 years old and they don't know how to help you experience a profound loss and that's where I've been able to step in a little bit and kind of guide people through that. I think if I if I back up a step and I hate to start a story with when I was in undergrad because that's just not even relevant anymore but when I was in undergrad the guy that I was dating his mother was diagnosed with cancer and died in very short period of time, like less than a month from diagnosis to death in my senior year. And he was in the ROTC, and so he drove home to central Illinois the day she died, and he called me when he got there and told me she had died, and asked me to go tell his commanding officer that he'd left campus. And it was in the days before cell phones, so you went there. <laughs> and so I walked over to the old gym, and I went into the Army ROTC offices, which I've never been, I been—I had never been to before. And this Sergeant Atkinson was there, so that was fortuitous. And I introduced myself, and I said, um, Tom had left campus. His mother died. He's going to be gone for a few days. And he took some notes, and then he said to me, what about you? And I was kind wow. of surprised, looked on my face, and he said, aren't you going and I said, yeah, I am. And he said, well, what college are you in? I'll call your dean. Wow. And so he called um, my college and told them I'd leave campus for a few days, and I did. And when I went back, I spoke to my advisor and thanked him for their support. Um, and they were all very supportive of me. And I was the support person to the grieving person. I wasn't in the direct fire of that loss. But I was probably... The first line of support for this person. So later when I was in the counseling program and we started talking about supporting caregivers, that really resonated with me as far as like, oh my gosh, that's so important. Like who's going to be side by side with you every day when you come back to campus and your new normal has this big hole in it. And so it's team. It's, It's your micro community. And so when I do have a student athlete, With a profound loss like that, one of the first things we do is gather their team and teach them how to speak to them again as far as what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. And that you can say, I don't know what to say. And that's so much better than saying nothing. Or you can just go for a run or shoot around hoops at midnight or whatever it is. Um, Actually, athletics and that practice schedule and the regimen of the day is really helpful for just getting through grief. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people are concerned, like, oh, I don't want to ask her about her brother because she'll be sad. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh, she's already sad. Yeah. And it's okay to do that. We can be sad together. Mm -hmm. And that's so much better than being sad alone. And then years later, after those kids leave Marquette, they graduate and reflect back on their experience. So we might see them at alumni events, things like that. What I hear most often is, I think I would have left if I hadn't had that net of support. Or just thank you for helping me through that. Or now I know what to say when someone dies. And that's important learning. So it's a gift to be able to do that. I never take it for granted.
0: And I've been in the communication office here for eight and a half years. And one of the things you're never prepared for, or when you start this job maybe no one tells you about, is that you will have to communicate You know, in the wake of tragedy um, and, and that's going to be hard, but you'll also see people pull together. Uh, and, you know, we had a recent story with, with Jen waters and it, it was, you know, fortunately a happy ending and she, but she almost died while she was studying abroad. And I remember that sort of touch and go moment and we flew her parents over there. Uh, and it was, you know, now she's told her story. She just graduated. Um, but that's one of those stories where you see people at their best, uh, during the worst, um. And it makes me thankful for being here when that sort of thing happens. Uh, Do you see, you know, do you think it's because we're a Jesuit campus or, you know, maybe a medium sized school? You experienced it when an ROTC commander asked about you, which may not be your first uh, thought of like who would take care of you in a situation like that. Uh, But but why do you think that is or do you think that is?
1: It's a great foundation to be able to say, hey, if you want to talk to somebody, if you want to go to the chapel, if you want to talk to somebody from campus ministry or a priest, we can certainly arrange that. But what I see in addition to that is that people genuinely care about each other. And to give somebody the opportunity to, to support someone else brings out their best. And it's scary because they've never done it before, or it's sad, or it's difficult. But it doesn't change the fact that it happens to all of us. And I think that some of my my kids that I've leaned on as far as being leaders in those areas of make sure you check on so-and-so every now and then, they see things a little bit differently. Like their lens shifts a little bit. Like we have a student athlete who had lost a parent and there's times you need to look out for that even like two or three years later. Holidays are awful, but so is Senior Day where everybody else's parent is there and you're missing a parent. And so what do we as an athletics family do about that? That parent's birthday or Mother's Day is tough, and so what do we do about that graduation? And so if their team is aware of this and can kind of help them network that and create again that net before they fall through or don't feel like they're part of it, um, they're just lending that support in a really organic way. Team, a lot of times, would describe themselves as being family, so it's so rewarding to me to see a teammate who maybe lost her mother walk across the field on senior day, arm in arm with someone else's mom. Then you're like, oh, it's working, they're getting it, they're reaching out to each other. I didn't engineer that, I just said, hey, don't forget, senior day is gonna be hard for this person because they lost their mom. And then you watch these 21-year-olds rise to that occasion and give that support. And what will that person remember about their senior day? It was less difficult because they were held close.
0: Well, wrapping up, is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: I'm really always proud of our student-athletes. I think that they do a tremendous job of representing Marquette, and um, they don't take it for granted that they have that opportunity. I love going to work every day where I work with people who are so excited that they're there. And I think that that it gives me energy every day. And it's just, I laugh out loud at my job every single day. And I think most people who just heard me explain like grief counseling and identity issues and depression and anxiety would be like, wow, you laugh out loud every day. (laughs) I laugh out loud at my job every single day.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I've I haven't visited you over at the aisle too many times. But when I have, I've seen, you know, student athletes like bouncing into your office (laughs) and laughing and having fun and telling crazy stories. And just like you being there as a resource and as a friend. Uh, So, yeah, if you know, you, you, you do you deal with these deep personal issues. But from what I've seen too, like you, you're just there to also be a friend and a sounding board to people, at least from my perspective.
1: Thank you. I think that's true. Come over anytime.
0: <laughs> I will. Well, thanks for being here, Maureen. Thank
1: you.
0: That does it for this edition. You can find a transcript of this interview, links, and show notes at stories.marquette.edu. If you'd like to nominate someone to be on the show, send a tweet to at MarquetteU or a message to facebook.com MarquetteU. See you next time.